0: Welcome to Indefinable Magic, a series of random word frenzies inspired by a long-running television series and a lifetime spent picking at its minutiae. With me, Toby Haydoke. This episode, not everybody lives... It was in the afternoon, I think, on a Sunday, and it was repeat of the long-running 1974-1981 sitcom It Ain't Half Ot Mum, not often discussed now, but a mainstream favourite of the time. I had been too young for the original run, but the show got another outing in the early 80s, and at the end of this particular episode, a slide appeared showing the actor Dino Shafiq, who played the regular but supporting role of Char Walla Mohammed. The BBC voiceover respectfully informed viewers that Shafiq had died in hospital and the family Haydok, who had enjoyed the character and the actor, let out a collective, oh. It was a nice moment. An acknowledgement of someone who had briefly lit up our screens, whose light had now gone out. Now, this was not a tribute episode. Sometimes the BBC scheduled a repeat to pay tribute to a recently departed actor. It was part of a repeat run with a hurriedly added post-credits announcement to tie the recent sad news in with this serendipitously timed repeat. So although it wasn't a deliberate piece of scheduling, it did mean that I was attuned to death announcements of actors. I didn't really know who James Mason was, but when I heard his death announced on the radio and the way it was noted by family members. It made me certain to look out for any programming convened to mark his demise, and I got to know his work almost immediately post-mortem. These were days when the passing of a thespian might cause a rearrangement of the schedule in order to fit in some apposite programming as a remembrance. The opposite of today, if recent events are anything to go by, when programmes are instead pooled in order to mark the death of an actor's career. Or when, say, a channel that endlessly loops repeats of a particular programme suddenly decides that this one is being shown in tribute to a recent departure. Oh right, UK Gold, you're showing Only Fools and Horses as a tribute to John Chalice, are you? That's funny, I thought you always showed Only Fools and Horses and would have been right now anyway. Still, the sentiment is nice and I'm not knocking it. In fact, on Radio 4 Extra we happened to have a play featuring Mr Chalice scheduled a couple of weeks after his death so I was able to insert a few nice words to tie in with the broadcast that would have happened anyway. Nothing cynical in that, just a happy sad scheduling quirk that enabled us to pay our respects. When I was a time tot though, poring over pictures of old Doctor Who's, the dead one was, of course, William Hartnell. He was the dead doctor. No surprise, he was the old one, ancient. My life and Hartnell's crossed over actually. He and I shared this earth for precisely 477 days although I don't think either of us were making much sense during that period, so even if we had met, I doubt it would have been the most thrilling of conversations. Still, it was at least physically possible. The two of us both existed in the same time zone, doing our thing at opposite ends of the country and of our lives. Not so with Roger Delgado, the other dead Doctor Who person whom I learnt about a little later. He was tragically killed Twenty-eight weeks before I came mewling and puking into this world. But they were the two big losses from Doctor Who, respectfully mourned in pretty much every article that referenced them. Dead people were enough of a rarity then for it to be commented upon, their name preceded by The Late. Look how many articles do that now. Well, they don't, of course. Because if you're writing about, say, Planet of Giants, your word count would essentially double. You'd be better off preceding the appropriate personnel with the still alive, as they'd be more of an anomaly. Of course, there were other people whom I guessed had died, just because, well, I was young and they seemed old. I wasn't surprised to learn that David Whittaker was gone. He wrote the old-fashioned-seeming first doctor books, long, dense, austere, which, by the time I was beginning to read, gave the impression of being ancient screeds etched in papyrus, although actually the editions I was reading as a ten-year-old had been published less than a year before I was born. But time is relative, and the Whittaker novels may as well have been by my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. I somehow equated Whittaker himself with the old white-haired doctor on the front cover of Doctor Who and the Daleks, even though I knew it wasn't him. And it was a dusty old book that smelled of age and writers were all old people anyway. It was therefore no surprise when I finally did see a picture of Whittaker and he was well, a white-haired old guy and a dead one at that. What I didn't know was that he died at the grand old age of 51. Crikey. I discovered fairly quickly that some of those other names I associated with Doctor Who, amongst the first names I ever learnt, were also being etched on that great Who memorial in the sky. I discovered quickly that both Brian Hales and Malcolm Hulk were gone, and so the impression I was being given was that if you wrote a Doctor Who book on my shelf, then you were more likely to be dead than alive. The fact that those books were hand-me-downs – I have two older brothers and an older sister – meant that they weren't current, and so conceivably were written by a legion of deceased scribes. So if the ones I knew about who wrote the books, more recent productions themselves than the TV episodes, were dead, then surely the more obscure names, who as far as I knew hadn't been producing novels or work since the TV show, well, were even more dead. The receipt of Doctor Who, a celebration, a hardback fact-fest that I got at Christmas 1983, finally gave me a definitive list of the people involved in Doctor Who who had died. Some, like Hartnell and Delgado, Whittaker and Hulk, I knew about. Some I had never heard of, so Lenny Maine, actually spelt Mayor in the piece, which wasn't an especially helpful memorial, killed in a boating accident, and Mervyn Pinfield, were dead the first time I encountered them. Anthony Coburn, I suppose, was no surprise. He wrote the first story, after all, and the first story had William Hartnell in it, and he was dead too, and it was a very long time ago. And I'm sure my mum had mentioned that Kit Pedler was dead, because it had been mentioned on Radio 4, which was always on in our house, and, as you have heard, as a family, we seem to clock death. There were various names that cropped up in the later pages of Doctor Who, a celebration, like... Douglas Camfield and Dennis Spooner that, I don't know, they sounded old. And those gentlemen worked mostly in the black and white era, and so it seemed to me they were probably ancient veterans by now. So when their deaths were announced over the next few years, I was saddened, of course, but I was hardly surprised. These guys worked with Hartnell. They must have been knocking on. Oh, to be young again, when 52, in the case of Camfield, and... 55, in the case of Spooner, seemed like a good innings. To be fair, I didn't actually know how old they were. As I say, they were names from the past, so I was just unsurprised. Whereas now, of course, their early departures seem shocking. So much creativity still to come, so much potential unfulfilled. I mean, Paul McGann, as I speak, is 60. A sprightly fellow who has almost outlived David Whittaker, for example, by a decade. But I strangely enjoyed reading about their deaths. I wasn't happy they were gone. But I enjoyed the sensation of marking their loss. Paying tribute to them. I enjoy funerals too. Not in the sense that they make me do a little dance. But because they provide a certain cathartic ceremony. A respectful stock A little bit of formalised perspective. It's not being done morbidly, I don't think. But more out of respect. I liked it if Doctor Who magazine did a tribute issue or if things were dedicated to the memory of someone. There's something about being drawn to sadness. Now, whilst I'm not sure it's healthy, can't I enjoy galloping in meadows, going to discos, or hey, even a well-prepared meal more than perusing obituary columns? No, Toby, you can't. I do prefer being respectful to the alternative. And of course, I was the perfect age to witness the losses Of most of my heroes as they happened I'd been watching telly with my sister we were alone in the house as mum was away when the news came on so I helpfully offered to make her a drink I went to the kitchen put a pan on to warm some milk to make her the requested hot chocolate then she called me so I ran up to the other end what did she want Patrick Troughton is dead she said I was gobsmacked he was my favorite doctor I'd composed letters to him but I'd I'd never sent them I was embarrassed too. I didn't want to be a pain too late now but the news was now onto other stories so how did I know that this was true I couldn't head to Twitter to check see if he was trending get lost in the scrolling tributes and shared grief my first thought I'm the youngest of four so japery perpetrated by elders was not unexpected was she joking winding me up She vowed not, but there was no way of checking, of corroborating this news. My mum came back the next day and I went outside to greet her, to tell her the news, but the words wouldn't come out. I couldn't make any noise. I opened my mouth but couldn't get any purchase on my larynx as my tear ducts took over from my vocal cords. Hot streams of salt water cascaded down my cheeks and I could almost feel them sizzle on my skin which burned scarlet hot with embarrassment. Those shame flames burned even brighter when I finally did get the words out and instead of marking it solemnly, which is the sort of thing we did as a family, oh, we'd gone for Dino Shafiq, oh, we'd opined for James Mason. She just smirked and said, oh god, I thought the dog had died, which apparently would have been a more justified reason to open the emotional floodgates. That's interesting, isn't it? As you've heard, as a family, we were respectful about the deaths of cultural figures when reported on the news, but if there was any whiff of emotion closer to home, it was, dare I say it, less deftly handled. My mum had been a nurse back in the day, clearly with a bedside manner that I suspect would nowadays be described as somewhat old-fashioned. Or perhaps patients get different treatment than relatives, because, after all, with relatives, you have to throw emotions into the mix-love, pride, hate, fear; removing them is bad, but dealing with them is hard, and so you can see why some people might." I learnt early then that I didn't like it when people were light-hearted, disrespectful, about someone's death; to me death seemed like the rubbing out of a unique person: "He was a man, take him for all in all; I shall not look upon his like again." As Hamlet said, Once someone is gone, we shall never look upon their like, or at least never get to soak up their knowledge, their experience, their stories, never get to benefit from their wisdom. Doctor Who has its own game attempt at Hamlet's observation, not about an unjustly murdered king and beloved father, but about a funny Welsh miner called Bert. You shouldn't feel ashamed of your grief. It's right to grieve. Your Bert, he was unique. In the whole history of the world, there's never been anybody just like Bert. And there'll never be another, even if the world lasts for a hundred million centuries, says Professor Jones, telling Joe why it's not wrong to be sad about somebody supposedly unimportant. I've seen that little speech mocked in some quarters, but it speaks to me. At its best, Doctor Who, a show about vast universes and galaxy-shattering events, says that even the most ordinary person doing the most humble job is precious, and we should feel that loss. Poor Bert. Poor Miss Evangelista. Hey, even poor Sandy the Sandbeast. Yeah, I know, that's not a person, but I told you, I'm sentimental, okay? And you learn from people, if you're open to them, receptive to their individuality and uniqueness. But more than that, I used to feel a pang of envy if someone said, oh, I met him once, about someone who had died, because once they're gone, no matter what you do or what you achieve, you will never get to meet them. Not once. Imagine having met, having been in the orbit of William Hartnell, or Roger Delgado, or now Patrick Troughton. It's no wonder who, living or dead, would you invite to your imaginary dinner party is such a popular fantasy question, and I always respect more people that choose great figures from history than current politicians or chart-toppers. If you'd rather break bread with Michael Gove or Taylor Swift than, say, Jesus or Shakespeare or William Ems, then you certainly won't be noshing on fantasy creme brulee at Haydoke Towers when the Guardian Questionnaire people come a-knocking. I have to be honest though, my lack of glibness about the death of others' flirts I fear, with sentimentality more often than not. In fact, deep down, I worry that the flirting is so successful, sentimentality and I have a full-blown session in a hotel room, and on the odd occasion, even a threesome with mawkishness is not out of the question. In fact, I'd venture to say that sentimentality, mawkishness, melodrama and mushiness all stick their car keys in a hat and end up together with me in a capri on a lay-by being gorped at by onlookers. Well, you get my drift. I remember when I had a guinea pig that died, well actually it was killed because my brother, despite being told not to leave a certain door open so that the dog could get in before we'd had a chance to buy a secure cage for the guinea pig, he did and this led to a traumatic peticide, which genuinely upset me and which the rest of my family still think is funny, in a dynamic which means they'll never quite be forgiven in my eyes and perhaps explains why I have to hide my hopes, desires and emotions inside an ancient and silly TV programme. So I buried what was left of this poor creature, who I'd had for literally days, with a note which said, I shall always remember her as one of the daughters of the gods. Why? because I didn't have many apposite quotes for death and this was one I knew because it was from Doctor Who and that rare occurrence, the death of a companion. I didn't actually think my poor guinea pig had any sort of divine connection otherwise it might have fought the dog off or something but, like Katerina, I'd only known it for about five minutes and didn't get to spend time with it long enough to regard it as a proper companion but somehow it had managed to secure a special, sad place in my canon. In the cold light of day, seeing a guinea pig off to the great hutch in the sky with the words of a fictional time lord paying tribute to a fictional Trojan handmaiden may not have been the most reverend of eulogies, but my heart was pure. And let's face it, the guinea pig will have been none the wiser and thus spared the embarrassment perpetrated by its proxy parent at its funeral. Uh, Attendees one said proxy parent. Me. But these were big moments. Doctor Who, a celebration, told me that Sarah Kingdom and Katarina had been unique amongst companions in that they had died. I didn't know then that their runs in the TARDIS were shorter than some guest characters and that their claims for companion status were somewhat dubious. That mortal pair were joined, in my lifetime, by Adric, bravely sacrificing himself to save Earth and generating some silent credits in the process. That's what you did when death happened. You showed reverence... By removing the theme tune. You didn't make sarcastic comments. I last saw my granddad when I was on the way to a Doctor Who convention. My mate had come to pick me up so I could stay at his the night before and we'd got halfway when I realised I'd forgotten my tickets. Yeah, in those days, you needed a piece of paper to get you in anywhere. I know, young people, we really did suffer in the dark days of parchment tokens. So we had to turn around and come back, and my grandad, who had been staying with us, shook his head, mock peeved at my youthful incompetence. He'd always been quite a reserved and removed fellow, no time for childish frippery, not unkind, but not quite knowable happiest in his own company, grafting away in the garden or reading up about the events of the day in his Guardian newspaper. But as we left, I was less scared of his disapproval and could see it wasn't entirely serious, and I patted him on the shoulder, perhaps with more familiarity than I might have done in the past, and said goodbye cheerfully. I'd never see him again. He died on the 18th of October, 1988." The same day as Kinder's Mary Morris, I discovered, when his copy of The Guardian popped through the letterbox as we prepared for his funeral, and her picture accompanied the obituary pages. He was my first relative to die, and it happened quite late. I was 14, and so most people I knew had lost at least one grandparent. So it hit me, I think, especially when the following week's episode of Doctor Who, Remembrance of the Daleks, Part 4, culminated in the funeral of flawed hero, Or is that misguided villain, Mike Smith, definitely not a Guardian reader? Well, look, it was a funeral and I'd just been to one. My first, I think. So my emotional wobble was as tangible as the one undergone by Mike's staircase as he crashed back into it, zapped by a homicidal Dalek schoolgirl. My granddad's departure, we called him grandpop actually, was perhaps better than Mike's a lifelong socialist who'd grown up in abject poverty and spent his early years in a children's home in North London, uh, which he never spoke about out of shame. Ah, That's maybe where the whole hiding emotions in a family setting thing comes from. He had, when Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher appeared on his nightly Newsnight programme, declared, I've had enough of that woman for one day, and he went upstairs to prepare for bed and died. The dismissal of Thatcher, fresh on his lips and forever minted, as his final words. I'd hope that even those of a different political hue would acknowledge that in a sad story that is a nice moment for a lifelong typesetter as he set off for the great printing room in the Sky, although as a printer Rupert Murdoch was his nemesis so Sky is something he would definitely have avoided. So his funeral was sad and so after a remembrance of the Daleks I was pretty raw. In fact, We had watched episode three in his house, and so the scenes that took place in a graveyard weren't exactly well-timed. The business with the coffin, oddly prescient of the difficult week ahead. But the death of a grandparent was not unexpected or unusual, and even though he was only in his seventies, he looked old. White hair, white moustache, like an albino staff sergeant Arnold, and not unlike him in bearing. He also wheezed and groaned, but TB, not TARDIS, and so didn't give the impression he was being snatched away. It quickly hit me what I'd miss, though. Being able to quiz him on anything, with no schooling at all, he had educated himself, and he would know about it, from popular culture, to sport, to history, to his reliable presence at breakfast, two Weetabix, every morning without fail, except on Sundays, when he had boiled eggs and soldiers. He may have been well-read, but he was quite staid when it came to foodstuffs. He knew what he liked, and he stuck to it. However, if you want to know when the critical mass of Weetabix is reached, it is when you are approximately 72 years of age. As one morning, confronted with the two brown bran bales that consistently made up his morning repast, he looked down at them and said, I'm bored of those, and instead helped himself to some shreddies which then became his breakfast of choice, every day, Uh, except on Sundays, when he had boiled eggs and soldiers, until the day he died. But habit is comforting, and so is ceremony, which is why we have funerals, and why we pay tribute. When Patrick Troughton died, the only upside for me was that Doctor Who magazine would undoubtedly do a tribute issue. More coverage for my favourite doctor. Unfortunately, due to printing schedules in those days, it took a while to materialise. And when it did, to my abject fury, the DWM archive that issue was Warriors of the Deep. Abject fury indeed. That's the kind of deep required for a Troughton tribute. I was also very cross that the BBC didn't show an old episode of Doctor Who as a tribute to Troughton. Fulton Mackay, who died at around the same time, warranted a hurriedly scheduled porridge episode, so why not dust off some old Who for the second Doctor? My effrontery wasn't totally selfless. We had recently acquired a video recorder, and so I could have had some old Who on tape for the first time. But no, my main objection was that this was the BBC once again undermining my favourite show and, by celebrating Mackay but not Troughton, favouring a comedy over a cultural phenomenon quite where poor Mr Troughton not to mention the esteemed Mr Mackay whose tribute I did not resent of course ended up in my whirligig of entitlement I do not know but like many moral crusaders my righteous indignation was not without self-interest and I ended up as cross as I was sad and it did nobody any favours I still maintain that the lack of a Troughton tribute bar a short monologue on Radio 4 from his old friend Jack May, with whom he'd endured the Space Pirates, and if a friendship can survive that, then it can survive anything, was pretty remiss. With Mackay's death, I made sure to record the news report to somehow make up for the fact that I hadn't nabbed Troutons. Perhaps I was secretly hoping they'd show a clip from Doctor Who and the Silurians, in which Mackay played Doctor Quinn, but again I was to be disappointed. If you're wondering about the depths of my cataloguing of perished players, I still have that videotape somewhere. It's the support feature on an E-180 that has the uh, much later BBC Dennis Potter tribute on it, an example of doing such things properly. (laughs) To forgive myself my unbecoming ire, though, I think all this fell under the shadow of another overlooked Doctor Who great. Robert Holmes had died before his final episode of the show was aired, and there was ne'er a mention or a caption to acknowledge the passing of this fine servant, which I had thought pretty poor. Nothing here would have had to be hastily convened. Holmes had died in the May, and the episode was broadcast in November. A few years later, I noticed the East Enders writer Charlie Humphreys got a nod at the end of the latest Omnibus of the Soap, and Holmes's absence from his valedictory episode still rankled. Interestingly, on one of my few visits to my dad, who didn't pay much part in my life, I remember discussing legacy and tribute, and him dismissing my sentimentality and my fury with the observation that whatever happens after your death doesn't really matter. You're dead, so it won't make any difference to you. A fair point, though I ruefully note that that came from someone who didn't make that much effort to create a legacy with his own family when he was alive so he wasn't exactly an objective observer and for the record and to my great surprise when he died I wept buckets and his presence or rather lack of it when I was a child has certainly left a legacy and not a particularly good one unless you're a particular fan of cathartic radio foreplays about absent paternal figures in which case he's a winner. I was older when the next of our leading men passed away. John Pertwee, unlike Patrick Troughton, who died on a Saturday and so only got a cursory bulletin, had time for a pre-titles warning. So in the opening moments of the news, the last story they threw forward to was And it's goodbye to the doctor, with a quick clip of the Pertwee titles. And so my instinct for preserving video-based sci-fi arcana kicked in and I grabbed a spare VHS tape and threw it into the machine. This way I'd have proof, I don't know, and and the morbid anorax version of the Zapruder footage to pour over and relive this defining moment. But I didn't like what I recorded. Indeed, I was furious. Oh, I didn't cry this time. I gnashed and churned and festered with anger. When the story came, there was a clip from Day of the Daleks of the Doctor fighting an Ogron. A decent choice, but the bit from earlier in that story when he disarms a human gorilla whilst maintaining his cool and drinking his whiskey might perhaps have been a better choice, but I'm not going to quibble. I am going to quibble, however, with when the BBC's arts correspondent, Nick Hyam, intoned the sets may have wobbled and the acting may have been found wanting, But for many children, John Pertwee was Doctor Who. What? This is a tribute to a man. This is the news. You wouldn't get that with anything else. The sets on porridge were no more robust than Doctor Who's most of the time, but there was no mention of those in Fulton Mackay's obit. Why not? Because they weren't bloody relevant. But the BBC was at that time in the grip of such self-flagellation about one of its most popular brands that it wasn't enough Not to make it. They had to twist the knife in at every opportunity, even in a purely factual, apparently, report about the sad passing of a national treasure. They made Gerald Ratner seem like a model of well-judged self-publicity. So I was too busy being angry to cry. I'm not sure that's a good thing. Tears used to make me ashamed. Now they remind me that I'm alive. As we have suffered so many more Doctor Who deaths as time has marched on, I think I've assimilated the news without a lachrymose response. Life does that to you. In fact, there was even room for humour with the death of John Pertwee. My friends were so taken aback by my need to record my hero's death and my obvious discombobulation at the news that that night they posted John Pertwee is dead posters all around the pub, in order that I might aspire one and get, I don't know, what, mad, sad? Well, it was actually a dose of gallows humour that in reality my joshing mates used to emphasise that they kind of understood its import and to empathise with the kind of cruelty that only real mates can. Whatever. I look back on their tasteless murals with affection and it doesn't make me any less sad that John Pertwee passed away. Emotions. They're complicated. But I didn't shed a tear, and as the man said, while there's life, there's hope. Although deep down, of course, my hope that the BBC might show some tribute to John Pertwee, as they hadn't with Patrick Troughton, was dashed pretty much immediately, as deep down I suspected the upcoming showing of the debut of the Paul McGann TV movie Would be enough, they'd stick a caption on that and not bother to show any old John Pertwee episodes. Yeah, I knew the game now, and that's what happened. Nowadays, of course, we have obituary forums, and I hang around on those now, sometimes giving folk the heads up myself, and then getting annoyed when people respond to the announcement of the final curtain of some old stager with Oh, I thought they died ages ago. Which, if it's the only thing you can think of to say during a mournful moment, I suggest... Perhaps not saying anything at all would be a wiser course of action. Sadness is supposed to, of course, go hand in hand with happiness, but nobody ever told me it would also go hand in hand with annoyance rather a lot of the time. As I say, emotions are a complicated thing. As we approached the beginning of the last decade, a Doctor Who fan friend of mine noted that the next few years were likely to cost us a fair few icons, whose deaths were fast approaching the inevitable, but whom we somehow couldn't contemplate life without. The ubiquitous Terence Dix, last man standing from the great target elite of 70s bookshelves in Haydock Towers, was as much an embodiment of Doctor Who as anyone, and like the DJ John Peel, he seemed so alive, so much part of the furniture, that he didn't seem like the sort of person who could die. By this time, I'd managed to inveigle my way into the pages of The Guardian, writing largely about Doctor Who figures, after boldly approaching them when they had either not published pieces on a particular person or, in the case of producer John Nathan-Turner, released a piece I considered fairly substandard, which made me, unusually for me, think, well, even I could do better than that. So at least I was able, with Terrence Sticks, to play some small part in marking the passing in an appropriate and, most importantly in Whoville, accurate way. So my sentimental streak has given way to a kind of professional thespish rubbernecking and I suppose I have the equivalent of a city and guilds in morbid curiosity and a diploma in eulogies daubed in grease paint. After a particularly torrid time for lost Thespes, I tweeted that I hoped this current crop of curtailed runs had come to an end and a friend, not unkindly, replied that seeing as I spend most of my time with actors whose heyday was in the 1960s, my proximity to the oeuvre of the Grim Reaper should not be too surprising to me. A fair point. Someone working on the first season of Doctor Who, even if they were only 25 at the time, would now be 83. A 40-year-old making Doctor Who in 1974, the year I was born, would now be, well, I'm 47 myself, so they'd be my age plus 40, or, to put it another way, lucky to be alive. The two old men of Doctor Who who died, Patrick Troughton and William Hartnell, we both just 67 when they died. And at 47, that seems perilously close. But despite my dad's suggestion that it doesn't matter if you leave a mark, surely we all hope to somehow, don't we? Or maybe that's just me because I'm an actor. But I've always been fascinated watching programmes, watching the people in them, captured in a moment in their lives. They may have been pretending to be someone else, but there they are, there, then who I'm watching, right now, there, in a unique moment, that I'm seeing them, alive and tangible. And when they were doing that, they had their own unique perspective, seeing as only they could, what they could, out of their own eyes, smelling what they smelt, thinking what they thought. And then, when the scene was cut, doing the everyday things that they do, that each of us do, but that are moment's which unlike their antics in a BBC studio all those years ago, were over and done with, and then gone. Forever. And those who've contributed to Doctor Who, not only are they preserved, but they are revisited. Their work is poured over again and again. And I think it's nice to know things about these people, which is why I've ended up making documentaries about some of those who were gone before we even knew them. Lenny... Main, correctly spelt this time. The Censorites writer, Peter R. Newman, so overlooked, his passing didn't even make the pages of Doctor Who a celebration. Because, yes, there were gaps in that. David Ellis, co-writer of The Faceless Ones. Geoffrey Orme, who gave us The Underwater Menace. Both had died in 1978, before anyone got a chance to interview them about their brief flings with the Doctor, known as Who. And then there's poor Jean Conroy, The younger of the women in the wood in the Dalek invasion of Earth, who died before her solo episode of Doctor Who was broadcast, but whose passing was unmentioned on screen or in voiceover, and so disproves my youthful theory that they did things more respectfully in the old days. A month after she was rehearsing her episode of Doctor Who, she was hit by a car and died in hospital shortly afterwards, aged just 30, on November the 14th, 1964. Just over a month later, her episode of Doctor Who was aired. She remains the only performer to have passed away before her episode was broadcast, although Howard Atfield, playing Jeff Noble in Partners in Crime, was too ill to continue with his serious commitments, and so his scenes ended up featuring Bernard Cribbins as Wilfred in his stead a sad but understandable choice which meant that Howard's final work on the show was never broadcast but he did receive a tribute credit on the episode he was replaced on when it was shown after his death. Radio Who, however, has an unfortunate habit of capturing the final performances of noted thespes, Valentine Dial as Slan in Slipback died a month before it was broadcast on Pirate Radio 4 whilst Harold Innocent as Freeth died in between the broadcast of episodes 3 and 4 of The Paradise of Death, and Julie received a tribute in voiceover, as he did at the end of the Heartbeat episode Going Home, broadcast a month after his death in September 1993. Then, of course, there is the case of Peter Arne, who had been cast as Mr Range in Frontios, but was sadly murdered before he could record his scenes. Returning from a costume fitting for Doctor Who, He'd been killed, bludgeoned to death by a young Italian man he had invited into his flat. His assailant subsequently took his own life in a tragic coda to an event which makes Arne the only actor to have died whilst making the show without recording any scenes. Earlier than that, in the 1960s, the deaths occurred of a small band of players who didn't live much beyond their outings in time and space. The next Doctor Who act death that I can ascertain after Gene Conroy is Jack Cunningham, the jailer in The Reign of Terror, who died in January 1967, less than two and a half years after his appearance in the show. Next up, I think, was Michael Peake, who plays Tavius in The Romans. Also, less than two and a half years after his appearance, he died in April 1967. And then, from The Smugglers, Jack Bly who died in September 1967, just under a year after his episode of Doctor Who was broadcast. Although he was such a doughty thesp, it was nowhere near his final role and he scored nearly a dozen screen appearances in between The Cove and The Grave. Now, it's unlikely that they, or their loved ones, even remotely considered that it was sad that they never lived to see that at least one portion of their acting career would last forever appreciated by people born after they died. But retrospect, I think, allows us to feel a little sad about the passing of these fine folk whom we never got to meet. Sometimes the opposite can happen. I had been searching for the actor Tony Harwood for years. Little bits of research had suggested to me that IMDB was just guessing at the 2006 death date it gave him, confusing him for another Tony Harwood as Harwood played a number of monsters in the Troughton era and in the flesh could be seen in the Ambassadors of Death and he would have been a fascinating interviewee. With help, I finally tracked him down earlier this year only to discover that he had died in December 2020. Doubtless prior to that, going about his business blissfully unaware that he would have been being probed for Doctor Who documentaries and signing autographs for eager fans in Chiswick if only we'd found him. Now, he may not have fancied either of those things, of course, but in my experience, most people are chuffed to find that in a former life they mesmerised people, even if in green latex or matted yak fur. And actually, Tony Harwood's final appearance in Doctor Who was in the flesh, in the Ambassadors of Death, in which we finally got to see his face, and he also delivered a couple of lines. However, what happened to him after that and before December 2020 and what his memories were of that extensive period he spent on Doctor Who and in some classic stories working with some legends, well, those were things that we could have been able to ask him had we been able to find him between The Ambassadors of Death and December 2020, but by the time that we did, it was too late. Talking of The Ambassadors of Death, that story has at least one episode, Episode 3, with no surviving cast members at all. Episode 4 is another possibility, depending on the status of John Lord, whom I have been unable to trace. Season 7, thanks to all of its regulars being no longer with us, is the only one to have episodes that have no surviving credited actors at all. Spearhead from Space, 3 and 4, and Doctor Who and the Silurians, 2 and 3, also have that sad and dubious honour. The recent death of Tony Selby means that Dragonfire Episodes 1 and 3, which used to have an entirely living cast, now sadly have a deceased cast member, leaving only City of Death Episode 4 and Earthshock Episode 1 as the only episodes of the classic series to have, as we speak, no casualties among the credited cast. At the time of recording, Tom Baker is the sole surviving credited cast member of The Deadly Assassin. Look at them all. Gloriously supercilious Angus Mackay as Borusa. Witty Hugh Walters, brilliantly suggesting both superficiality and disdain in his lovely turn as Runcible. Bernard Horsfall, strong and dramatic in those scenes in The Matrix, tussling in the undergrowth and negotiating tricky terrain. All gone. And some of them, quite soon after. Eric Chitty, coordinator Engin, died within a year of recording his scenes. Derek Seaton the youngest and most vital-seeming of the main supporting cast, playing hapless Commander Hillrid, was dead at just 35 before the decade was out. And yet, there they are, preserved on videotape for us to enjoy again and again, captured in a moment, or a series of moments, that happens to be part of something that means a great deal to a lot of people, and so will be revisited again and again and again, which means that all of them And what they did for that period of recording between July and September 1976 will be preserved forever, and they will never flux, nor wither, nor change their state. Never mind the Time Lords. That's true immortality. Thank you for listening to Indefinable Magic. This episode, Not Everybody Lives, was as anorak-clad a set of eulogies as you could possibly hope for, or not, and was delivered by me, Toby Haydock. music for this podcast has been specially composed by Dominic Glynn, and the podcast artwork is by Dylan Patterson. I would like to pay special tribute to patrons of this podcast, who include Jeff Walker, Richie, David Tranier Ian Dean Andrew Wilson Ralph Chilton Fnord Prefect Hugh Davis Nathan Martin Trevor Smith Simon Kohling, David Green Lee Kremin Ruben Herfindahl Peter Burns Peter Harness Rob Leonard Stephen Moffat Richard Straw David Jenny at Bluebox99 Paul Carrington Paul Cook Peter Crocker Rob Dawson John Deere, Chris Dunford-Kelk, Chris Fone, Jason Gorman and Barry Platt. If you would like to be a patron, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Hadoke Tiers start from as little as £3 a month and even then, if you sign up for a whole year, you still get a 10% discount. Patrons and it's a fairly egalitarian system. Most of the patron privileges are available at the lowest tier. Get, well, bonus content, early releases, interviews with Doctor Who people, pictures of my dog, and all sorts of other stuff. But it's mostly uh, for being far ahead. Uh, the Happy Times and Places podcasts uh, four or five months ahead of those that are currently out on iTunes, and Indefinable Magic and Too Much Information are a month to six weeks early if you are are signed up at any tier at all. That's patreon.com forward slash Toby I understand that that's quite a commitment. If you would like to show your appreciation as a one-off, you can go to ko-fi.com forward slash Toby tobyhaydoke. If, say, there's one you've particularly enjoyed or you're just feeling that I sound particularly hungry, cold or needy. Um, but I'll tell you what costs nothing, because I know times are tough and I mostly appreciate the fact that you listen But spreading the word would be good, saying nice things on Twitter, on Facebook, and especially giving these five stars, a five star rating on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts from really helps with the visibility of these things and makes the uh, hard work possible to be enjoyed by more people uh yeah those five star ratings and perhaps even a line or two of review really helped to juice up my algorithms and i'll tell you what a passing punter likes they like a juiced up algorithm so get juicing uh i expect after this i want my algorithms to be so moist they could wet you from the moon I, I, i'm not quite sure i'm not quite sure that went where i intended it to go you get the message um lots of nice stuff online is uh, is a an easy way and a very affordable, because it's free, way for you to help me out if you've been enjoying this stuff. Um, but thanks for listening. Uh, I have a web page or website. It's a website. Get with the program, Toby. I have a website. It's called www.tobyhaydoke.com. I also have a Twitter feed, which is at Toby Hadoke These podcasts have their own one, at Hadoke Podcasts. And there's a page on Facebook uh, where I plug all of my wares and point you in the direction of things that I am doing. Well, thanks very much for listening. I hope you're very well. That um, was just basically a list of the dead, wasn't it? Uh, oh, well. I, my heart is pure. <laughs> I, just, I was just, uh, yeah. And, and I, it took me many attempts to say professional thespish rubbernecking. Did I just get it right first time? That took me so... I actually had to do it in bits, uh, and I think I've just done it quite well without thinking about it. Oh, well, there we go. Um, I hope that was more than just a list of the dead, but it might have been a list of the dead with the odd metaphor and an overuse of the great, insert, apposite thing here, in the sky. So uh, I'm going to draw an end to this and uh, send this podcast to the great recording booth in the sky. Um, this is the after credits bit, anyway. So, um, you know, I'm counting on most of you not to be listening, but some people like a little bit of extra ramble at the end, and those people have made a rod for my back, which I'm now doing whatever one does, inserting. Yeah. Uh, right. I'm going to stop now. G- goodbye. <laughs>